Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Lloyd Danzig. Lloyd, thank you very much for coming on. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Australia. No matter where you are in the world, if you're looking to find your edge in sports betting or racing, you'll need to visit the Betfair Hub. From analysis to betting psychology, it has everything that you need. Simply visit betfair.com.au slash hub. Today, I'm joined by Lloyd Danzig. Lloyd, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks a lot for having me, Jake. It's, it's a real honor. I've been a fan of the podcast for, for some time now, so a real privilege to be here as a guest. I'm very, very excited to have you on, and, and obviously some of the areas that, that you cover uh, for both Iced AI uh, as well as Sharp Alpha Advisors, which I hope you can talk a little bit about now. It's very exciting to touch on many topics that I've certainly talked to others in the past about, and we might be able to have a, a more sharper focus on here. Yeah, sure. So, so I'll give sort of a quick 30-second pitch uh, for each of those and then uh, rewind a bit and, and go into a bit of how I got here and sort of what my view is on the industry. And then, uh, of course, happy to, happy to and looking forward to talking through this. Uh, so Iced AI is a, is a nonprofit. It's a 501c3 dedicated to ethical issues in the artificial intelligence space. Uh, and then Sharp Alpha Advisors is a sports gaming business and investment consultancy with a focus on companies that are deploying cutting edge tech, whether that be startups or the investors that are trying to deploy capital in those startups. And to rewind a bit, um, academically, I did my undergraduate studies at the Wharton School of Business, where I studied economics. And then uh, as a postgrad student, I studied computer science at Columbia for two years. And I worked on Wall Street uh, for a little while, first at BlackRock, uh, which is the, the world's largest asset manager, and then at a smaller shop called FTN Financial as a fixed income trader. And then after I did my computer science studies, I sort of pivoted more toward the data science space. Uh, that was back in about 2014 or 15. So AI and machine learning were not quite as hot a topics as they are now, but big data and data mining were. And then last year, uh, in 2018, I kind of was in the right place at the right time. I was looking for, for jobs. I was going to, I was interviewing as a quantitative trader, quantitative or algorithmic research analyst at Citadel and Anchorage Capital and some of those big funds. And PASPA was repealed here in the U.S. A number of startups popped up uh, and I took a job at one that uh, in, in retrospect, ended up being uh, a bit of a disaster, but was an amazing learning experience uh, that really kind of catapulted me toward uh, the state that I'm in now. And the way I really view not just the industry, but, but kind of life is that I see most people's lives as being a long string of trade-offs, uh, big and small. Uh, on the high level, you take a job offer and you're agreeing to the rate at which you trade your time for money. Uh, you then decide to buy a house and you're trading some of your money for shelter. Uh, and then at a smaller level, you know, you go out to a restaurant and you decide between the T-bone steak and the kale salad. And obviously the T-bone steak is more expensive and maybe a little less healthy, but the kale salad tastes like cardboard. And so you have to decide, you know, what do I care about the most right now? And not only are decisions very difficult because of the fact that there's no universal exchange rate, but there are unknown variables and unknown probabilities. Perhaps eating a steak will increase your likelihood for a heart attack, but the incremental probability with which it does that is unknown. And that's why I've always been so fascinated by the gambling industry and especially casinos, because in a casino, you are trading money for money. And the probabilities all are known. You sit down at a roulette table. You have a 1 in 38 chance of winning. You will be paid at a ratio of 36 to 1 in proportion to what you wagered. And that is all the information that you need to know to describe the full state of the game. And in sports betting, as with investing, uh, you also are trading money for money. And some of the probabilities are often unknown. For example, what is the probability with which we expect 
uh, this team to win or lose. But using a data-driven approach, you can help find those probabilities. And again, both in sports betting and on Wall Street, seek to maximize your risk-adjusted return. And, and kind of the final step is that my feeling is that modern technology that exists, particularly machine learning, is really our, our best way of going about assessing how to maximize risk-adjusted return. And it also has a number of applications in the sports betting space. So what I do now in the context of Sharp Alpha Advisors specifically is I help companies at early stages that are deploying some form of cutting-edge technology. It doesn't have to be AI. And I help them with things like access to capital and monetizing some of their data and optimizing their cash flows. And also when there are investors and financial institutions that are looking to get into this clearly exponentially increasing industry, but either don't know how to source deals or evaluate the deals that are in front of them, I provide consultative services to them as well. Wow. Yeah, there's, there's certainly a lot to cover there, a lot to break down. And I want to jump straight in. Tell me about your expectations uh, when it comes to legal and regulated sports betting in your native United States and some of the expectations in the beginning and how it's unfolded and evolved to now. And we've certainly seen places like New Jersey, Pennsylvania, down to Indiana, uh, legalize and regulate sports betting, among others. To use one of your analogies, has it been more of a kale salad or, or towards the, the T-bone steak end of things? What what can you tell us about your so, thoughts and feelings so far in this marketplace and, and how it's evolved? It's, it's a funny way of putting it, and I'll tell you. So I, I was born in the Bronx, but I grew up in a, in a small town in northern New Jersey. And so it's weird for me when, when I travel and I speak at gaming conferences all over the world. Uh, I was just in Malta uh, last week speaking at the Sigma iGaming conference. And it's weird to me when I hear people referring to New Jersey as the gold standard for uh, what is now being called RegTech, uh, regulation technology, and, and for being you know the most pro-business, pro-innovation, but also pro-consumer set of regulations. Uh, and, and it's just weird because you know, it's the small state that I grew up in and always called home and, and not used to people five, 10,000 miles away even knowing about, let alone holding in such high regard. And in terms of, you know, how I see the offerings, uh, first, let's sort of look at how these offerings are generated, because, of course, at the crux of any sports betting industry is, uh, sorry, sports betting operation is the odds at which various propositions are wagered on. And something that I found very kind of intellectually disappointing when I first started to really look under the hood of this industry is I saw that most operators or often case suppliers who supply the odds that the operators use, uh, they would use, you know, the most robust possible Monte Carlo simulation model to set the odds, the, the pre-match odds. But when it came to updating those and setting the in-play odds, their models were so inefficient that they would have to run these really just trimmed down, much less robust models in order to have a chance of sort of updating odds in that short period of time, like, the one between foul shots in the NBA or between batters uh, in the MLB. And what that gives rise to very often are, are inconsistencies in odds that arbitrage seekers and especially algorithmic arbitrage seekers can exploit. And of course, when arbitrage seekers are, are, are part of the markets, generally all the other participants suffer because the operators have to build in a larger house edge uh, larger VIG or something of the sort to compensate themselves for the fact uh, that this is happening. And, and so, you know, this is one of the key places where machine learning is starting to be used. It needs to be used because with a machine learning model, you take as parameters zero time elapsed, you know, zero minutes elapsed, zero points scored, zero timeouts, and you just increment them one by one, and you have this much smoother transition from pre-match to in-play. Uh, so that's kind of what's going on in the back end. And most of, you know, the, the points bets of the world, the, the kind of uh, more tech-focused, modern-day, uh, sort of younger and sleeker sports books are, are definitely uh, very aware of this. And, and I think that even, you know, the bigger guys, the, the William Hills or the, the Cantor Gamings of the world are very aware. It just is simply very expensive to update your entire tech stack or your, your entire, you know, modeling framework from stochastic simulation, which is the category of models that have traditionally been used to machine learning models, which seem to be the ones that are going to be used going forward. 
So that's sort of the behind the scenes answer to the question, which is, uh, you know, generally just kind of a, a disappointment uh, looking across the industry, not just in the accuracy of their modeling, but in, in the fact that the slow nature of, of and the inefficient nature of many of the models it w- is what gives rise to the frequencies with which you see markets suspended, the time when you go to place a live bet, an in-play bet, and you see that kind of pending spinning wheel for 10 seconds where you can't take your bet back, but you're waiting for the operator to accept or reject. In terms of the offerings, you know, on the front end, uh, you know, New Jersey is definitely doing a great job. I believe there are 17 mobile operators currently operational in New Jersey. And I think that that is not only a function of the regulation technology, but uh, just of the very sort of pro-business tax structure. Uh, In New Jersey, sports betting is taxed at a a little over 14% for digital sports wagers and a little over 8% uh, for for retail. Whereas in Pennsylvania, you're looking at a much higher tax rate and a much higher licensing fee. And just in general, the fact that two neighboring states have such different regulatory frameworks is something that I see as being a major impediment to both innovation and investment. And I see all the time, I see it happen at conferences where someone from across the world, a venture capital firm, comes looking to invest in the U.S. market, and someone puts up a slide with a color-coded map of the state of legislation in various states. And then you'll have two states that might be the same color, like Tennessee and New York, but in Tennessee, it's mobile only, and New York, it's brick and mortar only. And you can see these investors say, this is way too complicated. There's way too much legislative and regulatory risk. I'm going to invest in Macau or Latin America or one of those other emerging markets. And so there are definitely some operators that have the cash to not only deal with and jump through the legislative and regulatory hoops, but also pay the massive costs of customer acquisition that most U.S. operators are paying right now. And those are some of the guys doing a great job. Again, PointsBet and DraftKings are two that really come to mind as having great offerings, great great markets, uh, you know, good promotions and things like that. However, I really do think that you know, in order to see a fully robust and mature sports betting market, first of all, a lot of the uncertainty surrounding the 1961 Wire Act is going to need to be cleared up. Uh, and second of all, some form of standardization, hopefully without any real federal oversight, uh, you know, would definitely be helpful in providing a path to legalization and a path to regulation. Because you see in New York right now, for example, we have four commercial brick and mortar casinos and three tribal ones upstate, but there's, there's no mobile sports betting. And so that means that all the dollars are either going to New Jersey or to the offshores. And the argument in New York right now is not whether sports betting is or is not constitutional. It's actually more nuanced. It is what is the path, the legislative path that a bill or law would need to take to be enacted? In the United States, there are many different ways for rules to, to actually go into play. And so in New York, for example, there's an argument over Does this need to be a referendum, meaning, you know, something where everyone in the state votes on the matter, or does it need to be a constitutional amendment? And so we're getting bogged down in some sort of legislative bureaucratic nonsense that is, again, more than likely not only serving as an impediment both to innovation and investment, but also, you know, being an impediment to tax revenue that some of these states, New York, California, Texas, and Florida being the four biggest are all currently missing out on. So with some of those obviously current legal and regulatory challenges and hurdles that do exist, you know, especially on the operator side, are there still things that sports betting operators can be looking at augmenting from an operational perspective or maybe a technological perspective that you think would be sensible for them to, to look at more closely, more seriously and, and hone in? Or if there are any gaps that do exist that they should be thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, the the caveat that is almost implied in your question is is very important. And that caveat is that these operators have a lot on their plates right now. Uh, Many of the operators in the U.S. are actually hoping for a slower ramp up 
towards legalization in the remaining states because they simply don't have enough cash in the bank to properly pursue and acquire customers in many, many states at once. And so if you look at some of the internal financial projections for a lot of operators, their EBITDA or at least EBITDA margin projections going out five or 10 years are often higher uh, in a situation where fewer states are legalizing each year. Uh, that said, I, I do think that one of the things that, that is, is at issue and was a very popular topic at the Sports Betting USA Investor Summit sponsored by Morgan Stanley earlier in November is the fact that all these operators are, are comparing a cost of customer acquisition to a lifetime value that they used whatever data sets to, to come up with. And of course, that ratio or that comparison becomes sort of irrelevant if you don't hold on to the customer for the amount of time needed to realize that lifetime value. And, and I think a, a very you know classic example of a way in which this is, is problematic is uh, you know, I mentioned uh, sort of in the intro here how the the traditional algorithms and traditional simulation models give rise to a lot more frequent and a lot longer lasting market suspensions than uh, hopefully the, the more modern machine learning models, you know, would provide for. And so if you're DraftKings and you pay however much money to acquire a customer, and of course, part of that cost is, you know, the $500 free bet or deposit bonus that you have to give them. And they log on to place an in-play wager because they're sitting at the bar with their friends and that market is suspended or the KYC AML controls block their deposit or they go to place the wager and the wheel is sort of spinning and it never gets accepted. Well, maybe they'll just go over to the FanDuel app and not only place that same bet, but place it with a 20% payout boost because they've never been a FanDuel customer before. It's always a very difficult landscape to operate in when cost of customer acquisition is very high, but there's also a high availability of substitute products and virtually no cost to the customer to switch. And of course, in states where there is mobile sports betting and there is no requirement to sign up in person, as, as is a requirement in some states, uh, you know, you face a lot of challenges in in terms of making that assessment in terms of whether the cost of customer acquisition is worth it. So I think that machine learning, whether developed in-house or licensed from third-party software providers, needs to be used not only for the purposes of, you know, lengthening the time during which markets are suspended or hopefully erasing that altogether and also lessening the time that people have to wait to have their live wagers confirmed, but also for things like geolocation and KYC AML compliance, where I remember I did a few months back a sort of impromptu de facto market research study where me and five or six of my friends, uh, we went right over the river. I'm in New York City. We went over to a sports bar in New Jersey, and none of us had any sports betting apps downloaded. This was soon after PASPA uh, had been repealed and some of the operators started up. And I think we each downloaded, I don't know, DraftKings, FanDuel, PointsBet, and William Hill. I, I want to say we're the four, but, but don't quote me on that. And we're all you know, software engineers and, 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 and analytical people. So, so it's not like we don't know how to you know, use our cell phones and, and our apps and, and tweak our settings and log into our online banking. And I believe after 30 minutes, and again, this was about a year ago now, but after 30 minutes, only one person had successfully made a deposit in one of the sports books and was able to place a bet with it. And this has definitely improved over time, but you really, if you're one of these operators, you want to make it as easy as possible to separate customers from their money once they have made the decision to give it to you. Once you have converted them psychologically and emotionally, there should not be a technological barrier that prevents you from acquiring them as a customer. And unfortunately, a lot of the barriers to customer acquisition and retention right now are technological and algorithmic and, and based on kind of the old way of doing things. So I think as operators scale up, uh, you know, the other issue is there's a major shortage of talent in the United States. Uh, work visas are getting harder and harder to come by. A lot of the talent gets imported from uh, from, from the UK in particular, and also other parts of Europe and some of Asia. But there really is a major shortage of talent in the United States in terms of people who know, let's say, how to code, 
uh, how to think quantitatively and how to apply those in sort of a financial market mindset to the sports betting space. Uh, and so those are those are some major challenges. Uh, again, I, I think of points bet as someone who's really, really doing it right, especially with their you know points betting offering that kind of keeps you interested in the game, even if there's no way your team is or is not going to cover. Uh, but that said, I, I think at least you know some more parity or perhaps standardization across states would make things a lot easier. And, and I just don't think that anybody wins from these operators having to pay so much money in legal fees and licensing fees and, you know, to, to get in touch with regulators. I think that consumers end up, you know, being hurt. I think operators end up being hurt. And, and really that the path toward a, a more liquid and robust and mature sports betting market in which everyone has the maximum amount of offerings uh, is going to have to be one in which Either some of the tax rates, especially in a state like you know Pennsylvania, come down, and or uh, there is an easier path to regulation and legalization and some more clarity regarding uh, things, particularly like the Wire Act. So there are certainly some intimidating challenges that that do exist. Have you seen any of these larger multi-state or multinational operators adopting some of those startups to tackle some of those problems that? You know, you've certainly already discussed some of the problems that you're seeing in the industry already. Are there are there any ones that stand out to you that might be able to attack and and fill up some of those gaps and holes that that might be appearing here in the U.S. or is it just still too early? So I, I think I'm going to answer that question in not at all the order that that you asked it, but because I think that the the word you used at the end there too early. Uh, too early is something that I find myself thinking a lot when I go to conferences and I hear people on stage opining about the differences and similarities between European customers and U.S. customers, for example. And, and you'll hear people say with certainty that certain customers are more and less loyal to particular brands in this geography than that geography, and that this is a difficult path to market and that that's an easy path to market. And And I just think that those may be data-driven, uh, you know, conclusions. I, I'm not sure where they're getting them from, but the sample size is, is just small and, and who knows how radically different and transformed the market is going to look, you know, not that long from now. In terms of, uh, I'd say that the two types of startups that I find most compelling, uh, and I'll give an example from each that I've seen you have on the podcast, and then an example from each of those that, that you have not. Um, one is sort of this notion of kind of uh, betting intelligence. Uh, you can think of like, you know, the Action Network as sort of the holy grail. They did their $17.5 million Series B. It was just revealed that Stephen Ross, had a, uh, owner of the Miami Dolphins, had, had an investment in that. And, and they're kind of, you know, the, the kingpin. And, and their packages are, are quite expensive, but, but, but really compelling. Uh, you had uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Reed Rooney of Betspurt. Uh, on a few months back, I think in October. And, you know, he sort of has, I think he calls it like the LinkedIn of sports betting experts, where people can kind of navigate the world of tipsters and touts and choose and quantify who they want to follow and whose picks they want to pay for. Uh, an example that uh, from this kind of betting intelligence uh, community or, or vertical that, that was not on the podcast uh, would be guys by the name of uh, Trends Sports, T-R-N-D-S. And they're actually a part of the Sport Radar Accelerator uh, right now, which is great because they get you know access to some Sport Radar collateral and some of their data. And they are essentially what I see as the action network, but at, at a lower price point. And if you want to go and very quickly see how do the Patriots perform on a Sunday night against you know an AFC team coming off a bye, what is their record against the spread in the last five years? Uh, you know, they have an app powered by sport radar data that is very effective in generating and, and helping kind of realize and share some of those trends. Uh, I believe it's only in, available in iOS right now, uh, but that is one vertical that's very popular. The other is something that's kind of capitalizing on, on what I've been calling the financial productization of the sports betting space. You know, as I mentioned, making a sports bet and making an investment are what I see as mathematically isomorphic events in that your only goal, aside from maybe some entertainment value, is maximizing your risk-adjusted return. For any two stocks, if 
They have equal risk profile. You want the one with the higher return. For any two sports bets with equal risk profile, you want the one with the higher return. And because of that, you know, anything that you see in the Wall Street financial services fintech world, presumably you should see, uh, you know, mirroring itself in, in the sports betting world. You've had a ton of these guys on, on your podcast, particularly another good friend of mine, Scott San Amaterio of Wall Street Trading, has an amazing platform that he built out that lets you trade kind of Wall Street style in and out of positions that reflect the over or under valuing or the over or under emphasis that the public is placing on the likelihood that a given team wins over the course of a game. So in his case, you'd focus on one game, Monday Night Football tonight, uh, and through the course of the game, you can see how the rest of the public feels about the probabilities with which they expect each team to win. And if you think you know better, you can kind of capitalize on that. An example from outside of the podcast uh, would be, uh, again, in the similar space, there's, there's a company by the name of FanVest Wagering Exchange, and they right now have, you know, again, another kind of Wall Street-like functionality for expressing your predictions for how teams are going to fare over the course of the season, and I know that they actually have a ton of other financial product-like services and mechanisms for wagering or at least opining on sports events that they're going to be rolling out in the near future. And to me, these are are two major themes, you know, people really using and wanting to have a data-driven approach to who they wager on, and then being able to express those views, not necessarily in terms of, you know, a a three-team teaser or, you know, a, a plus 250 favorite, uh, but something that, you know, just resembles a more intuitive way of, of expressing, uh, you know, views. So Interactive Brokers, which is, uh, you know, a, a stock and Forex and bond trading platform, they currently have a free-to-play virtual currency sports betting exchange, and all, do- all dollar amounts are supposed to be quoted in ways that directly correspond to probabilities. So similar to Ball Street trading, if you buy a team for $56, that's supposed to mean you are denoting you feel there is a 56% chance of them winning the game, rather than needing to know that you know a team being minus 118 is about a 56% chance there, or whatever that number would be. And, and so I think these are very important trends uh, to, to look for from a consumer perspective or from an investor perspective. If I were an investor, I would want to have a stake in whether it's going to be Betfair US or whoever's going to control the peer-to-peer exchange that is fully liquid and finds a way to circumvent or you know coexist with the wire act. That's where I would would want to be uh, sort of invested, you know, kind of like how do you make the most money in a gold rush? Well, you sell picks and shovels. So I would say those are the categories that are consumer facing. Uh, on the back end, there are some B2B companies that are uh, building out, you know, automated trading systems, AI powered risk management systems. And if you go to, you know, a betting on sports uh, event, ICE, uh, G2E, any of these big conferences, you'll see a lot of their booths. And I know that some of them are doing well, some of them are struggling. And it turns out that even using the most advanced predictive analytics, Predicting the outcomes of sporting events is very, very difficult. Uh, and building automated AI-powered products to kind of take away the human component or the necessity thereof is, is not something anyone has truly succeeded at just yet. And so it's seeming like in the near term, there's going to be, you know, need to be a real mix of man and machine involved. Uh, but, but that is sort of what I see from, uh, from the startup perspective. I'll tell you, for anyone listening who's trying to get into the space and raise money, there are some very eager venture capitalists and angel investors and and private investment funds and home offices that are dying to to get a piece of this industry. Every report that comes out about expected growth over the next X number of years is just getting larger and larger. But there is still a lot of learning that needs to be done, uh, a lot of education regarding some of the nomenclature and sort of terminology specific to the gambling world. Uh, but that said, you know, there are some really exciting startups and some really exciting venture capital funds that are, are helping, uh, helping those startups scale.
So on the startups then, do you have any advice for those startups or any features or things that might distinguish them from others in what I'm guessing is, if not already, a pretty crowded space or will be pretty soon for some of these smaller and medium-sized businesses who are about to or have already entered the U.S. market? Yeah, so that, that, that's a great question, and, and it's and it's one where an answer that I give today might be different from the one I would give yesterday, which could be different from the one I'd give tomorrow. But I'll tell you that, that one common theme that might seem almost like pedantically obvious or, 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 or vacuously nonsensical and that it's weird that I even have to say it, there are actually, you know, people who are listening to this who are big sports betting fans and know how to look at odds. And you might have listeners who I could say, hey, what would you price, you know, the uh, the Arsenal Man U game at if these were the conditions? And they would tell you the odds off the top of their head that are just like, you know, the market clearing odds on Betfair. That doesn't necessarily mean that those same listeners or, or those same stakeholders understand the way that accounting systems work in a sports betting company, for example. Revenue and profit are not really terms that sports betting companies use. They talk about handle and gross gaming revenue and net gaming revenue. And understanding things like the nuances and the dynamic of, and how affiliates and suppliers and operators and regulators all sort of coexist um, is really important. And, and again, it, I, I almost feel silly saying people should know the industry that they're getting into before they try, try to raise money because that seems so obvious. But I, I see all the time people who put a lot of time and effort and money and resources into developing ideas that would be great if it weren't for the fact that they were just patently illegal or not able to be licensed or for any number of reasons just stand no chance. Uh, of generating revenue unless there's a paradigm shift from a regulation or or, or legislative perspective. So uh, as obvious as it sounds, really doing diligence and making sure that the, the path to market or the path to profitability is a is a reasonable one and, and one that will, you know, be able to actually be realized is something that some people are simply not doing. But that aside, because hopefully that's kind of just the ABCs and, and the basics, there are some great, you know, venture capital firms as well as private strategic investors and also some accelerators. Sport Radar has one. Uh, DraftKings has one. Uh, I think William Hill has one. I'm not sure if it's open right now. Um, you have, you know, the 76 capitals and the sports gaming investment funds of the world. These are people who don't only supply capital, but supply strategic advice. And just like anyone who watches Shark Tank, you know, hears the sharks sometimes say how, you know, you want me because I can make one phone call and make this happen, or you want me because people actually pick up the phone when I call. The same is absolutely, and in fact, perhaps even more true in the sports betting space right now. Most industries at the very top are controlled by a small, intimate inner circle of people, and that is especially true in the sports gaming space. There's a small inner circle of people who are at all the conferences, who know all the investors, who are friends with all the venture capitalists and all the regulators, and kind of, you know, making sure to have a pipeline and, and have, a, have a good way of connecting with and, and being sure to be aligned with the, the key forces and, and be aware of how those forces are changing is very important. And I would say, you know, anyone who's trying to raise money or, or, or is at any stage of scaling a startup uh, can go on Crunchbase, uh, can Google, you know, sports accelerators, sports technology accelerators, sports incubators. And, and based on where they live, we'll find a whole host of, of interesting options that don't only offer strategic advice, but also, you know, publicity and ways to generate brand awareness uh, and the like. And so I would just say, you know, it, it's a lot about just being very, very thoughtful. Most of the companies are not raising massive amounts of money right now. The Action Network $17.5 million Series B is certainly an outlier. There aren't many uh, checks being written, and there aren't even many Series Bs being raised in the sports gaming space. So just being very thoughtful about who your advisors are, who your investors are, you know, is everyone who is part of this project really adding value and, and able to sort of, you know, describe the value proposition and, and perhaps pivot that value proposition if the market requires? 
Uh, those would all be things that I would look for if I were an investor. And those were all things I would want in perhaps a co-founder if I were starting a company. So along that line and, and trying to be thoughtful about this, I'm sure almost every pitch deck that you see probably has those two letters, AI or, or those other two, ML. <laughs> How can one incorporate AI and ML in a sensible way? Or what are some of the ways you might have seen or you know, from someone looking at it from your perspective, whether it is a, a B2B opportunity for an operator or working with an operator or, or even more B2C focused, how can one think about using AI and ML sensibly and not get caught up in some of these more fanciful ways that you've probably heard and seen already? Yeah, so great question. And, and let me just step back first, because you're right. You, you walk these days, you, you go to, you live in New York City or Silicon Valley and you walk into a pitch meeting and you say, you know, I have an AI machine learning powered blockchain neural network and people just throw investment dollars at you because they don't understand, but you say it with enough confidence that you know what you're talking about and they assume that you're doing something futuristic. And I see even in the engineering community a lot of confusion and conflation around terminology. Uh, even when I speak at artificial intelligence conferences that have nothing to do with gaming, uh, I, I see the terms being used incorrectly. So I think of sort of four terms in this landscape. Uh, and I kind of, uh, the way I'll describe them in order is almost in this nested hierarchy, starting on the outside and moving to the inside. The, the big sort of overarching circle that some people use interchangeably incorrectly with AI is automation. So automation is nothing more than processing according to pre-programmed rules. So you have like a robotic assembly line that's putting together cars or microwaves or even a robot at McDonald's that's serving you a burger. That is not really artificial intelligence. That's just an automated process that's doing the same thing over and over again. Artificial intelligence is, is a subset of automation and particularly is processing according to pre-programmed rules in ways that mimic human abilities. So if you think of, you know, your favorite Alexa-enabled device that is able to kind of hear and speak with hear and speak slightly in air quotes, those are human-type functionalities. And so those are the type that are generally referred to as artificial intelligence. Machine learning is then a subset of artificial intelligence and is not just processing according to pre-programmed rules in ways that mimic human abilities, but doing so in a way that allows for iterative improvement. And I think the best example that most people will be familiar with is the spam classifier on their email client. Whether you have Gmail or Outlook, it, it probably came preloaded with some algorithm that diverts certain messages away from your inbox. But as you let it know that it correctly or incorrectly labeled certain messages as spam, it iteratively improves at classifying what you consider good and bad email. And then finally, a subset within machine learning is called deep learning. And that is this processing according to pre-programmed rules in ways that mimic human abilities and iteratively improve without human oversight. And it's important to note that the ability to improve without oversight is a bit more of a consequence than a characteristic of the architecture. But when you hear about neural networks and you hear about computers beating people in chess or Go or driving autonomous vehicles, those are generally within the deep learning framework. So to answer your question of how might, what, how might these be used, what, what are the key use cases, machine learning, first of all, is really the type of technique that's used in finance and in healthcare. Usually when you're asking, when people are talking about AI, they're talking about the pattern recognition capabilities of machine learning. Not always, but, but for the most part, if you were to substitute in your head pattern recognition for artificial intelligence, you'd probably have a better bearing on what someone is actually talking about, whether or not they even realize it, uh, more times than not. And just by the way, if you have any listeners who heard my definition of artificial intelligence and said, hold on, I thought, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Terminator was what artificial intelligence was. Well, that's another kind of area of confusion around terminology. So the types of AI that exist today are, are what scientists and researchers refer to as narrow AI in that they're designed and programmed to accomplish one function and they get incredibly good and efficient at accomplishing only that function. And this would be compared to general 
artificial intelligence or artificial general intelligence, often abbreviated AGI, which is the class of machines that interact with the world in the way humans do across all dimensions. So a Terminator or, you know, the, the robots that Will Smith fights in iRobot, those would be artificial general intelligences. So machine learning or pattern recognition on steroids, you might call it, is I think probably very obviously a really good technique for odds making or handicapping. You have a massive data set. You want to find the patterns that are most predictive of the likelihood of a team winning or the margin of victory, and machine learning is great at that. But also risk management, which is perhaps the most, if not one of the most important functionalities at a sports book, is, is an incredibly great opportunity for machine learning to come in. You know, most sports books don't actually care what the real probabilities are. They care what people think the probabilities are so that they can have an even number or an even dollar amount of wagers on either side of a market. And machine learning allows you to update robust models in real time and predict betting trends in a way that hopefully make risk management a lot more optimized and streamlined and perhaps automated. Right now, there's an incredible amount of manual labor and sort of, you know, fat finger error prone human input uh, being used for both handicapping and risk management. So in terms of the things that people interact with every day, those are the two main ones. Another area is called responsible gaming, which is the industry term for the suite of mechanisms by which people are hopefully prevented from becoming addicted to gambling. And for the most part, right now, that only exists as either self-imposed restrictions, you know, don't let me bet more than this many dollars in a week, don't let me deposit after this hour of the night, or an outright self-exclusion. However, machine learning is, is a really good technique for looking at behavioral profiles over a long period of time and being able to identify proactively when someone is deviating from responsible gaming behavior. And that may be different for each customer. I might have a large variation in my betting patterns. But if you only place one $10 wager per week, and whether you win or lose, that's all you do. And then one Saturday night at 2 a.m., you place a $10 wager and lose. And then you place a $20 wager on a Peruvian basketball game and lose. And then you place a $40 wager on, you know, a women's under 18 soccer match in Korea and lose. Well, chances are that is not responsible gaming as far as your, uh, your, your definition would be concerned. And, and that is just that is a simple human recognizable pattern. Machines are capable of identifying much more complex patterns. And I should note quickly that responsible gaming is an industry term. You hear it, you'll see it in everyone's pitch deck. Uh, anytime you download a sports betting app, it'll have a responsible gaming tab. I am kind of trying to trying to replace the term responsible gaming with the term sustainable gaming because I think that does a better job conferring the notion that keeping people from addictive behavior and also preventing the degradation of the integrity of underlying sports leagues doesn't only benefit a few people, but every single stakeholder in the sports gaming industry and actually the entire sports entertainment industry. And then finally, the, the other two really important sort of back office, uh, you know, perhaps functionalities for which machine learning is important that do end up uh, affecting people uh, in a B2C uh, mentality. One would be uh, everything involving fraud detection, KYC, AML, detecting syndicate betting, betting on behalf of third parties, bonus exploitation attempts, all that stuff is far better left to a well-constructed but human-monitored machine learning engine uh, that can make things like getting verified, getting geolocated, having your deposits processed uh, a, a much smoother uh, experience. And, and finally, there's an idea that is, is in the works uh, that is loosely being referred to as bet recommendations, which will function just in the same way as the functionality that has Netflix keeping you watching and Facebook keeping you scrolling, where machine learning is really good at looking at your behavior in the past and seeing what you'd be most interested in going forward. And so right now, most of us log on to a sports book and we all see the same promotions and the same available markets and the same available odds. But it's very possible that in the near future, operators and suppliers and, and other technological stakeholders use machine learning models that learn from your particular behavior over time to serve you 
ads or promotions or recommendations or what have you uh, that are not only better and perhaps more profit maximizing for them, but also enhance the user experience for you. So that might not be a totally exhaustive list, but, but really the top five use cases uh, for machine learning are, are handicapping or odds making is one, risk management would be two, uh, responsible or sustainable gaming is three, uh, fraud detection slash KYC and AML is four, and then, you know, bet recommendations or, you know, a more customized curated experience would be number five. So I want to dig in on the, the risk management aspect that you touched on and and get your thoughts around one topic that often comes up in the U.S. market around winning players, winning betters being kicked out or winning betters being limited, which is obviously not a, a new phenomenon that's that's hit sports betting or it's anything that hasn't been deeply explored around the world. But just from your perspective, and obviously risk management varies depending on your definition and what people think it means, but it, you know, it obviously can mean certain profiling, uh, taking you know a, a handful of bets as, as small as three, four, five bets, and trying to decide if they're going to be a long-term winner. Do you think there's a way that machine learning, there's a way that some of these techniques and and things that you're focusing on can try and help that, and there's a path to allowing that type of clientele into the market? So that is, I, I think I'm I'm glad that that's what you chose to focus on because I think that is one of the most interesting and and important questions that that the answer to which. Uh, will sort of perhaps manifest itself over the coming months or years and really help define what, you know, the next set of transitions and transformations that take place in this industry are. So your point, which I'm sure your your listeners, especially the international ones, will be very familiar with, but people in the U.S. who are new to sports betting are, are not at all familiar with is, is exactly what you said, that if you're really good, you're going to get banned. And it's so much to the point that points bet, for example, they try to differentiate themselves by saying, we will take up to $10,000 wagers from the sharpest action and the sharpest punters, the sharpest gamblers out there, you know, above 10,000, we can't say, but, but that kind of was an advertising point that they had at some point. And to some people, especially those who come from a Wall Street background, the idea of being banned for making some good picks uh, is almost incomprehensible, as is the process that many in-play live bettors face where they say, okay, right as, as soon as this field goal, you know, gets hit or misses, I want to pound the live over. And they go to submit that bet and they get a little wheel for 10, 12 seconds during which the operator has the ability or the risk manager has the ability to accept or reject it. And they can't take that bet back. And, and so, you know, first of all, it's unfortunate that this is, is very likely going to, you know, give more sustenance to the offshore books uh, because the offshores are much less likely uh, to, to ban someone for, you know, being deemed sharp. They're much less likely to even be profiling them as such because for them it's generally about maximizing turnover uh, or, or handle. And there's one thing from, a algorith from an algorithmic or a machine learning perspective that's very interesting and brings up a a sort of weird, I don't know if I'd call it a paradox, but, but it's something weird in this space, which is that if you were really, really confident in the odds, if you're an operator, if you're really confident in the odds that you put out, that they either reflect the true underlying probabilities or they really do reflect the market clearing sort of supply and demand driven probabilities, well, then you shouldn't really care where and from whom uh, different wagers are coming. It doesn't really make sense if you were supremely confident in your odds that you would accept a $100 wager from a new customer, but you would reject that same $100 wager from a, quote, sharp customer. Because if your odds were accurate or you were confident, then those dollars would have the same expected value for you as an operator. Of course, what operators and suppliers are saying and risk managers are saying when they reject wagers is, we actually don't think the expected value is, is the same because the fact that this sharp is coming in and placing this large wager makes us question the accuracy of our model. And machine learning can definitely do or, or take some steps to improve the accuracy and the confidence with which odds are generated and can also go a step further and say, okay, we're going to accept this wager 
even though it may not be profit maximizing for us because we're confident that our machine learning models that we use from a risk management perspective will tweak the odds for all subsequent customers in a way that allows us to reach the risk minimizing uh, sort of market clearing set of odds on both sides of this market. And so there definitely is a case to be made for developing technologies and, and algorithms that do a better job setting and managing odds and risk that will facilitate more of the sharps, you know, staying at whatever the given operator is that, that acquired them as a customer. And again, without, you know, moving odds away from some of the, let's say, unsuspecting square customers. However, what I think is that the reality is that what's going to need to happen from a number of perspectives, this being one of them, is there's going to need to be a, a larger exchange wagering community in the United States. There are a number of barriers to this uh, right now that, that are very interesting. And, and again, if, if I could invest in one area of this space, I would love to have a piece of the Betfair U.S. market if and when that happens. But the 1961 piece of legislation known as the Wire Act, which forbids the pooling of liquidity across states, makes running a, an exchange very difficult. Because if I try to sell a share of Apple on Fidelity right now, well, I just need someone who's willing to buy that anywhere in the world at the same price. And in fact, Fidelity has so many customers that they usually just do what's called crossing, which is where they just find one of their own customers who wants to buy it from me, and they don't even have to go to an exchange. In contrast, if I wanted to lay Manchester United tonight from, and I was sitting in New Jersey, well, there's going to need to be someone who wants to back them at those same odds in the same state that I'm in at the same time. And given the massive learning curve that most Americans need to take, the fact that people don't know what a parlay is or what plus 375 is, or especially with, with soccer, European football, you know, plus 1.25, most Americans are not exactly familiar with, with, with how that works. The idea of an exchange is not only a legislative hurdle, but a sort of operational and educational hurdle as well. Not to mention the incredible power that some of the lobbying forces have. We already see states like Florida and California running into trouble with, leg, uh, with legalization because the Native American tribes uh, and the brick-and-mortar casino operators have such a strong lobby and such a strong interest in preventing mobile wagering because they feel not only will it obviously decrease their sports betting handle, but it'll also decrease the people who come on premises to play sports bets and then stay at the hotel and play blackjack and go to a show and get a massage and buy dinner. And similarly, a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer sports betting exchange where I can sit on my couch and say, hey, I want to bet on the Jets tomorrow. Who wants to take the Bengals who they're playing? And anyone in the country can take the opposite side of that. Uh, then I am, of course, much less likely to go to my local Native American casino or, or commercial casino and, and spend other dollars there. And so there's a whole host of impediments to a to, to any level of sports wagering exchange in, in the U.S. That is what some of the Ball Street tradings and FanVest wagerings, for example, are trying to implement. Betfair does have a horse racing exchange app in New Jersey. Uh, I don't know how great or strong the liquidity is and what the prices look like compared to, uh, you know, going to a fixed odds sports book or using the power mutual wagering at the track or the OTB. Uh, but, but definitely what is unequivocally and most 100% certainly going to happen, but in what time frame I couldn't tell you for the life of me, is a migration toward a decentralized exchange. There are some people, uh, Scott San Amaterio, for example, Ball Street Trading, I think mentioned this on, on his episode on your podcast a few months back, who feels that there's a chance that what happens is the leagues become sort of these clearing houses and the operators of today almost act more as broker dealers. And that is certainly, uh, you know, a potential that I could see for the future. There are also some cryptocurrency based peer-to-peer uh, -peer wagering exchanges, not to mention a number of free-to-play exchanges that are seeking to acquire customers that they may be able to convert to real money gaming later on uh, that, that are looking into this. 
Uh, and so the, the answer that I just said in a very long-winded way to, to your question is from a risk management standpoint, uh, yes, absolutely. There are chances to enhance, you know, algorithmic capacity and, and predictive abilities using machine learning. But if I were DraftKings, if I were FanDuel, if I were, uh, if I were PointsBet, I would be keeping my eye on how can I be first to market and ready to go as soon as I feel that this country or a particular state can sustain and, and justify and support a betting exchange because then risk management doesn't really matter and I'm just a tech company operating a platform and taking a small commission along the way. Lloyd, we could literally talk for hours on some of these topics and, and unrestrained, I'm I'm sure we would, but in, in the interest of, of getting you out of here within a, a reasonable time frame, I want to ask one question around some of the topics we've already talked about, machine learning and some of the different techniques and, and things you expect. Do you think that's going to have a centralization effect in that you know, you've already talked about some of the Pareto principle stuff you're noticing already and and some of the, the sports books dominating the market share and some of the handle metrics already. And, you know, with 17 sports books or around that in New Jersey, at this point in time, do you think that centralization is more likely to happen? And obviously that can have many different impacts moving forward and some can be predicted or at least, you know, pretty good guesses. Is that something we're going to look back on and think, you know, we were silly not to recognize that this is going to happen more and more in this industry in terms of what we can think about from a modern modern sports betting perspective? Yeah, great, great, great question. And I, I think, first of all, we saw, you know, what the, the probably the most recent piece of news in, in this vein was uh, was uh, William Hill uh, buying and taking over a lot of the CG technologies. Uh, sportsbook operations. I think five of the main ones on the Strip, uh, the Atlantis in in the Bahamas, and and I'm forgetting what the other uh, non-Vegas uh, location was. But no, un- unquestionably, from an operator standpoint, you you would expect to see some form of, of consolidation. There are economies of scale to be realized, as is the case with any business, uh, but also just a massive risk management. Add advantage that comes from to someone who has the largest customer base and the most liquidity uh, and the largest handle because it, that that just makes it. Yeah, although it's a larger dollar number, generally, kind of from a law of large numbers perspective, it, it makes it a bit easier uh, to to manage risk if you have the infrastructure to do so. Additionally, the, right now, you know, there are only a when we're talking about the real money gaming operators. There are a finite number of licenses that exist in each state. Some of them, Pennsylvania, for example, it is very expensive to get licensed and it is very expensive by way of taxes uh, to stay licensed. If you look at what just happened in New Hampshire, for example, uh, aside from Intralot managing their lottery, DraftKings is going to be the exclusive sports betting provider. And they won the ability to do that by bidding that they would share the highest percentage of their revenue, in their case, 51%, with uh, the state of New Hampshire, uh, as long as they got to do it on an exclusive basis. And not many companies that run a, right, a sports betting business is a very low margin business. Parlays run, you know, 9 to 10% profit margin. Uh, other non-parlays run uh, 3 to 5%. You have your operating costs, your licensing costs. It is not easy share 51% of your gross gaming revenue with the state. And there are very few companies that can afford the legal bills needed to even put together an analysis and make an offer like that, let alone be profitable in a state with that amount of margin being taken away right away. So absolutely and unquestionably, again, as is the case in New Jersey, it is not sustainable for 17 mobile operators to be paying seven, eight, nine hundred dollars whatever they're paying to acquire customers, and then saying, and hey, any affiliates can get a two, three, or $400 bounty. Uh, so from an operator standpoint, even forgetting the longer dated future where maybe, you know, the leagues operate as clearinghouses or, or maybe Betfair comes and, you know, just knocks everyone out, or maybe Google or Amazon decide to operate an exchange, who knows? Um, you know, that is definitely a place where there's already taking place some consolidation, and, and I would expect e- even more. Uh, again, just based on the co- the operational costs of having, you know, 50 or 51 different intrastate, self-contained, jurisdictionally compliant uh, 
uh, operations, that is just not something that, that many companies can do, especially in such a capital-intensive environment. Outside of real money gaming, when you talk about the massive litany of startups that are pursuing the free-to-play space, people who are building out affiliate networks, people who are building out various technology suppliers, betting intelligence companies, and the like, uh, that is a little more difficult to predict because of the legislative uncertainty and the fact that different things are taking place at different times in different states. If someone waved a magic wand and every state had legal sports betting with the same rules and regulations and tax rates tomorrow, then unquestionably we would see a massive rush of venture capital dollars and startups and uh, you know, there would be maybe even a, a mini bubble and some people would get some crazy valuations and then there would be a massive consolidation. Uh, some people would have some big exits, some big buyer, buyouts and some mergers, but it's not happening like that. And, and so there are some localized companies, for example, who make money in the sports betting market by just in the way that some companies who do Seinfeld trivia will charge a bar some fixed rate. Uh, to host a Seinfeld trivia night because the bar knows they'll get incremental revenue and the Seinfeld trivia company knows how to administer trivia. There are local sports prediction contest companies that make money by having bars pay them to put on sports prediction contests. And the, the company comes in and they set up their app and they set up some TV screens and leaderboards and, and, and kind of monetize the engagement and the eyeballs and the passion that people have for sports that way. Still, that said, I, I think that there is likely to be, you know, some form of consolidation at, at some point, but uh, it is much harder to time. And I think that it is an amazing time uh, if you are a, a young or really any age person who has an interest in sports and technology and, and analytics and, and finance and kind of how all these things coalesce and, and, and kind of dovetail with one another. It's a great time to start a startup, it's a great time to invest in one. Even if you are able to just acquire a lot of down funnel customers who are very likely to be deposited customers who, who make deposits and, and make real money wagers, that database uh, of customers will be worth at least something. Uh, affiliate marketing is, is not much more lucrative almost anywhere in the world than, than in the sports betting market. And the last thing I'll say, again, a, a long-winded answer from what may have seemed like a deceptively non-long-winded answer justifying question, is that I've heard people really echo this sentiment that sports betting is a bridge to gambling island, where things function totally differently. There are a lot of people, customers, regulators, legislators, investors, who have not wanted to touch the gambling space historically, but... Since sports is a little more socially acceptable and fun to talk about, right? everyone does a March Madness bracket at their office, but not everyone does a poker game or has backroom baccarat at their office. And so people, states, regulators, governments, whomever, getting more comfortable with sports betting is likely to lead into a world where people are more comfortable with gambling in general. And the revenue that is generated from things like online slot machines, so far eclipses by orders of magnitude, the size, even, even the largest, you know, high end bull case size of the sports betting market, that there is ample room to monetize captive and, and, and active customers and, and building a technology, for example, that could be used for KYC and AML compliance in sports betting, but also in an online casino would be a great way to hedge yourself against the possibility that perhaps the sports betting market gets saturated, but the online casino market is so much bigger and, and so large that if and when we reach a, a state in the U.S. where all 50 or maybe all the states uh, except for Utah uh, have legalized sports betting and legalized online gambling, uh, the pie is going to be so large that even having a small percentage of it uh, will, will, will be a, a lot of fun and it will definitely be a fun ride getting there. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's so many other topics we haven't gone into detail on or are only scratching the surface on some critical topics, but hopefully we can do it again sometime soon. 
For those that are interested in following along and getting your thoughts in this space, what's the best way for for those people to go about doing that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, LinkedIn is generally a place where I post the majority of, of the talks and the lectures that I give. Uh, you know, generally, you can Google my name, Lloyd, L-L-O-Y-D, Danzig, D-A-N-Z-I-G, uh, and find a lot of the stuff that I do. But LinkedIn is probably the, the predominant place that I go and, and then followed by Twitter. Uh, either of those are places where you can find, you know, the, the talks that I give, the fireside chats that I'm hosting, the panels that I'm moderating, and absolutely more than happy. I think anyone who knows me will vouch for the fact that someone who's interested in getting into the industry, advancing their place within it, finding a way to pivot on their current business model, absolutely should feel free to reach out. Uh, LinkedIn message, Twitter message, uh, whatever the case, I'm always happy and thrilled to sit down and talk to people who have some good ideas. My philosophy is that a rising tide lifts all ships and having you know the savviest investors, entrepreneurs, and engineers all working together uh, is going to make not only sports betting, but just sports fandom uh, a lot more enjoyable, a lot more futuristic, and a lot more engaging over the years to come. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's certainly been a pleasure chatting. I appreciate all your time and insights. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much. 